Prosopagnosia, the inability to recognize faces, occurs in up to 2% of the population. Most people struggle with it alone, unaware it even has a name. The stories in this podcast can be painful and hilarious. Join us for an exploration of the people, science, and realities of this condition. Maybe you have a hard time remembering faces. Come for the stories, stay for the coping techniques. Our guest today is a philosopher, science fiction writer, and podcaster from South Africa, Jason Werbeloff. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. It's great to be here. I want to start off uh, first by saying that I'm a little intimidated to talk with you. Oh, please don't be. <laughs> and the reason why is I have never actually used words like ontology or epistemology in conversation. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't use them in conversation either. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Um, before we get to the philosophy piece... Uh, and before we find out a little bit more about you, uh, the first thing I have to say is I made a big mistake uh, when we had our first exchanges on Facebook. Um, you said something like, I am uh, releasing a science fiction novel soon. And in my mind, I thought, oh, he's a beginning writer. He's never written anything before. And yesterday I went to Amazon and started looking for one of your books. I thought, hey, I've got some time. Maybe I can read some of one of Jason's books before we actually speak. And I saw a lot of books. You've got a pretty deep catalog. How long have you been at this? So I wrote full time for about six years. I, so altogether, it's about 13 novels and a whole lot of short stories. Um, so yeah, I did a full time for a while. I haven't written much in the last six to 12 months. Um, a massive case of writer's block recently. And um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of other things in the last year, like digital marketing and lecturing um, and podcasting. But, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it, I love writing um, and it's what I want to get back to once my muse returns. Well, let's jump right into that. So the book, I, the title I picked up is uh, Head On or Head On. How, how would you pronounce that? Yeah, I, I, I call it Head On. Um, and that's, that, would, that would be extracted from the word hedonism. Um, so Head On is... is Which all, I would say hedonis, hedonism. So that's yeah, just the yeah, difference this, in this, parts in of the accents. world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I apologize for my yeah, yeah. Those are very South African. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Head On is, it, it was my second novel, I think. Um, so I wrote it about four years ago. or four, Wait, that it, was your second novel? I think so, yeah. My first novel was The Solace Pull. And then I think I wrote Head On. Um, so yeah, so Head On is, a, is about a, a world where um, people are forced to do what makes them and others happy. So there's all sorts of weird rules in society. Um, one of them is that, for example, there's compulsory homosexuality and no heterosexuality allowed because there's been overpopulation. Um, right. I noticed in the very beginning, I'm looking it up here, I'm at uh, 23% of the way through, so I don't know at all what's going to happen. Please, no spoilers. Um, but I picked up on that. Yeah, I picked up on that immediately. It's a, you know, a dystopian novel and setting uh this is just for me it's my podcast so i can ask anything i want yeah go for it but where 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 does it actually take place i i haven't been able to pick that out what part of the world it's in yeah so i'm very cryptic about my location in in a lot of my novels um they're actually all set in future new york 
Um, so they're, they're set in a future New York where the landscape has shifted slightly, um, but I never actually mention that. Um, hmm. Yeah, so it's future New York, but it's New York not run by Americans. It's New York run by Tibetans. So in, well, sort of Tibetans. So in this future world, um, th there's a country called Bhutan that exists today. It's a tiny little country next to Tibet. And um, this little country takes over the world. And it takes over the world with, today, what they have is something called GNH, Gross National Happiness, as their guiding yes, principle. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that exists today in Bhutan. So they operate their, their system, their society, based on happiness points rather than points of economy, rather than dollars or units of currency. Um, so in this future world, what happens is that um, America runs the Bhutanese take over the world and they run the world on GNH. Um, so you trade happiness units. And the way you do that is that you have a little machine installed in your skull and it measures your happiness and the happiness that you cause others or the sadness that you cause others. And if you're not happy enough, you get into trouble because you're, you're poor. Your, your wealth is determined by how much happiness you have. And, um, and yeah, it's an interesting society that I kind of played with um, a few years ago. Now, I really um, am impressed with the writing. I mean, I, I read a lot and uh, I was a little worried, you know, if I read this and there were, you know, <laughs> it, it was horrible writing, you know, grammar mistakes, no plot. Uh, I, I, how, how do I approach this with my guest? <laughs> but it's actually really well written and I'm Thank surprised you. that's your second novel. Yeah, so that was my second. I wrote uh, The Solace Pool first, um, which is a world where um, everyone is 3D printed. Mm. Um, so it's a world where you can not just 3D print body parts, but whole people. Um, so you step into a, a printer, it scans you, pulps you, and then reprints you somewhere else. So instead of traveling, you get reprinted there. And in addition to that, um, you get reprinted with changes. So you can reprint yourself um, already having eaten a meal, having had a nice rest, having gone on holiday, you'll be reprinted with the brain states of someone who's gone on holiday. You can be reprinted with the brain states of someone who's studied a course, like a PhD. Um, so instead of doing anything in that world, you just get pulped and reprinted. And uh, yes, yeah, so I wrote that first, and then I wrote a series of short stories called Obsidian Worlds, then head on, and then I started writing a very long series after that called Defragmenting Daniel, which turned into nine books and eventually burnt me out after after years of writing it. Well, uh, we'll get off of the actual titles here. Uh, I will say that, you know, I can see I found my new addiction, so <laughs> I'll be completing all of those. Although I do wish that you had audio versions. So, so do I. Uh, maybe yeah. put that on the wish list. Um, I'll do that. So uh, I have had a you know bucket list item to become a writer at some point you know i think my life could have taken a, a turn where i was a writer very early on um i just didn't go down that path uh but you know i've read uh like stephen king's book on writing i believe it's called on writing that's right um and you know so i've sort of in that way, walk through what it might be like to be a writer. And when I imagine coming up with and concocting these storylines and many characters, and your characters are fully, at least in what I've read so far at, what, 26% or whatever I said, um, I mean, they're fully formed characters. I mean, I already can have, I already have my own visualization of at least three of these or four of these characters walking around. For a face blind person, that's a big compliment that you're visualizing them. 
Well, I don't visualize their faces. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but yeah, I yeah. I have a distinct image, a collection of uh, items about each of those people, and I'm wondering uh, how face blindness impacts you as a writer, or how you work around it, or how it might influence your writing style. Mm-hmm. You must have thought about this. Yeah. So I actually only discovered I was face blind in the last year, but I've been writing. I wrote all these books before I discovered this. Um, but now going back and reading some of my writing, it's very obvious to me that I was face blind. Um, so there's different types of face blindness, but the type I have, I'm very good at reading people's facial expressions, but can't recognize their faces. Um, so I often write about people's body language, their facial expressions, because that's how I recognize people in everyday life. That's how I build up an image of a person. I think you call it an alternate Um, an alternate of a person. So it'll be their voice, their body language, their gait, their smell. And those are the things that I write about when I write about people. Um, But I really struggle to actually write about a person's face. In my mind, that face is a blank. It's it's like a blank piece of skin when I'm I'm thinking about the character. So um, when I do ever mention actual features on the face, it's kind of something I have to do artificially. Um, and so that's not my preferred writing topic. What I usually write about is their body language. I love writing people's body language um, because that that really is something that I understand quite um, natively. It's, it's how I've explored the world personally um, and how I've connected with people is by watching them move. So as you were talking, I was just thinking about a real vivid scene that I just read this morning, actually. Uh, so uh, one of the characters, Scion, is standing outside uh, the apartment complex, and she's looking up at the second or third floor, and she's trying to see like who's actually in her apartment. She uh, knew it might be her husband, but then she recognized, oh, that's not the sh- the silhouette shape of my husband. It, he doesn't have the you know the spiky hair. That's so interesting that that's there, right? Because that's exactly, those are the kind of thoughts I have all the time. (laughs) But but even with a person standing right next to me, you know, I wouldn't be looking at their face. I'd be looking at their shape and their spiky hair. Well, okay. I'm going to jump all around with you. I I can see that right now. Go for it. So one question that I generally want to dive into is the level of severity with guests. Um, I'm quite mild. In fact, Sometimes I even question if I even have face blindness um, because there are people who I can recognize pretty quickly sometimes. And I definitely will recognize my wife uh, anywhere. This morning I was at a, a sporting goods store actually and I saw, um, you know, a friend that I've known for about 20 years, well, 15 years, uh, two people ahead of me in line and I recognized him immediately. And I got all excited. I was so proud of myself. And I said, hey, Jeff. His name's Jeff, too. And I said, hey, Jeff. <laughs> um, so then I walk out thinking, wait a minute. You started this whole podcast. Are you actually pod- uh, face blind? <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, that that self-doubt that one has it at all uh, is something I experienced, too. My face blindness is not severe. Um, I wouldn't call it mild. I put it in the middle of the spectrum. Um, I've taken all the tests I can find. Um, there's a few, I'm sure you're aware of that. There's a few tests. Um, to me, they all have different problems. Agreed. Um, I I wish there was a definitive test out there. And by the way, that's something I'm working on at the moment, which I can talk to you about. Um, but 
but the problem with the tests is that different different face, face blind people have different problems when it comes to faces and some of the tests elicit those and some don't so I'm pretty good at recognizing someone's flat face. So on a picture, on a photograph, on a screen. Um, if you put it next to another flat face, but I can't map that flat face onto a round face. In other words, onto a person. So if I go on a date and I look at their picture on the dating site and then I meet them in a restaurant, I won't know who they are. Um, but if I look at their picture on, on a flat screen and then look at another picture on a flat screen, I might know who they are. So depending on the lighting and the angles as well, you know, if they're different lighting, different angles, I'm going to struggle. But a lot of the tests, you know, they're on a, on a computer screen, so they're flat faces. So I often do pretty well with those. Um, the test that I thought was the best, um, my understanding is, is that it has the highest reliability score. And I can't remember the name of the test, but um, it's, it's a self-report test. So it asks you 20 questions um, and it gives you statements like, I have trouble with faces. I have trouble recognizing my family and friends. And then for each of those, it asks you whether you strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Oh, interesting. It's just text-based. This yes, is not just one of the yeah. facial matching tests. Yeah, and, and that, my understanding, is known to have an, a very high reliability score. Um, and I come out there in the middle bracket um, of severity uh, on the worst end of the middle bracket. Um, I think my score was about 80 out of 100 on that. So the, 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 the higher your score, the more face blind you are. Um, I think it's above 45 or 50 that you are considered face blind. Um, so that test I thought was the best. Um, but I've been working on other measures and the best one that I found is I sent you one or two of these videos, the control alt face videos. So there's this new technology around where they can kind of live change someone's face on a video. Um, and they can change one person's face into another. So there's this video of um, Bill Hader, Saturday Night Live comedian, um, doing impressions of various people. And they change his face to those people as he's giving the impressions. And a friend of mine sent me this video and I couldn't see the face change at all. I just saw Bill Hader right through. And he was shocked that that's what I saw. And he said, watch it again. And I watched it again. And he said, watch it again. And I watched it again. And and that that was it was kind of a it was a terrible moment actually um kind of realizing that there's something that i just can't see that other people are seeing and um it, it was very disconcerting and very i'm not an anxious person but in that moment i felt deeply anxious and um the reason this had happened was the reason he sent me the video at all is that the previous day i bumped into him at a shopping center and he's a very close friend i see him at least once a week and spend hours and hours with him. And I didn't recognize him. And I, I eventually worked out who he was, but for the first few seconds of the conversation, I was very combobulated, discombobulated, and I, I didn't know who he was. And after that, he became very curious, and he started sending me all these videos and these tests. And I realized this is what was going on. And after that, I became aware of all the things that I do that other face blind people do. Um, just can't recognize people and I always put it down to laziness or not paying attention or um, you know and eventually I, I worked out what was going on but it it it, it was quite a shock um, you know a lot of people there's a lot of humor around prosopagnosia and I appreciate that humor and I find it very funny as well but there's also um, you know Oliver Sacks says there's a deep shame in it 
because it is really uncomfortable not to recognize someone. Deeply uncomfortable. I agree. And in keeping with that idea of, you know, I'm not sometimes entirely sure that I have it. Then I think about all the times where I walk away from an engagement feeling like a complete dirt bag because you are, I'm so self-centered. You're not important enough for me to remember. Yeah. And that alternative is even scarier to me. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you know, there's my, th this friend of mine, I, I, I chatted with his girlfriend the one night. Uh, she's fascinating. She's a journalist. She'd worked in morgues with bodies and was, she was like, she was kind of like a thriller writer in like a true thriller writer. And I was fascinated by her and, and she's a journalist and I, I was really interested chatting with her. And I, we chatted for about an hour and a half next to each other at the dinner table. And the next day it was my friend's birthday. And this woman walks up to me who I've never met and starts talking to me. And it's the most bizarre experience because she knows exactly who I am. Her mm. voice is familiar, but I can't place it. And it was her, but I had no idea who she was because she'd put her hair up. And, um, you know, those kind of experiences, she, she was very offended. She was quite deeply offended that I had no idea who she was. But once I knew who it was, once she told me her name and I knew who it was, of course I recognized her. It's not that I'm not paying attention. It's just that I can't pin her to her face. Have you found uh, any variability in this? I mean, there are some people who you naturally recognize a little more easily than others. Definitely. So I, I did a lot of thinking about this after... I kind of self-diagnosed with face blindness. Um, and one of the things I realized is that all my friends are very weird. <laughs> they are weird looking people. Uh, so this friend that I was talking about earlier, his name is Mark. He has long hair, a beard, he's short, and he's just so, he's just so recognizable. <laughs> you know, like in a crowd, anyone, he, he has the same problem I do, which is that people come up to him all the time and greet him and he's not sure who they are. It's not because he's bad with faces. It's just because everyone recognizes him so well. Um, so I've chosen people like that in my life um, who I can recognize easily. And I've realized that totally unconsciously, I've typecast all my friends that I interact with. So I have one male friend with long hair, one male friend with short hair, one blonde friend, one older female friend, one young female friend, you know, so, so but, and there's never more than one of each type because <laughs> that's all my brain can handle. Um, when I was growing up at school, I had two friends. I had one friend who was incredibly tall. So he was taller than everyone else at school because he had a condition. He was a f like a, a head taller. And it was just such a pleasure to pick him out of any crowd. Mm. And my other friend was a really short blonde guy. And I went to a Jewish school and there were no other blonde kids. So it was wonderful. <laughs> it was just the, the tall, the tall you guy. You went to a what kind of school? A Jewish day school. Oh, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. So it was just such a pleasure. It was, it was such a pleasure to, to have them as friends. I could always pick them out of a crowd, but I had no idea that's what I was doing at the time. It was an entirely unconscious thing. And it's really made me think back and think how many missed opportunities I've had to connect with people because they don't look weird or freakish in some way, um, or very distinctive. I, I, I tend to avoid people that look very normal. Hmm. Well, I, I guess the uh, point I was making is I definitely see um, certain people inexplicably are easier for me to remember. And I, and it's not always because they have an ax wound. 
<laughs> I wish everyone had at least one wound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like so, for a great example is, and it also doesn't seem to map to how important the person should be to me to remember. So, like a good example of that is uh, in my current job. Um, when I went to interview for this job, I met. Uh, well, he was going to be my boss's boss at this time for uh, this position, and we met at a diner. And, um, you know, at the beginning, uh, I was able to kind of study his picture on LinkedIn. Uh, so I knew who I was looking for in this diner and, you know, that's just a coping skill that everyone should use. Right. Yeah. And it works if you know what situation you're going to be meeting the person in. Yeah. Um, and so I walked in, no problem, met him, sat down, perfect fit, really liked the guy, really loved the company. And we got along great for probably two hours. Um, walked out of that, uh, got the job. And then I would say maybe a month, possibly a month later, um, I, I went to, uh, Florida for a big kickoff meeting with this company. Uh, you know, already you can imagine this is a stressful environment. Very much so. There's going to be lots of people walking up to you that you don't know if you know them or not. Well, uh, so I see a man walking towards me, uh, He's got that look in his eye that he recognizes me for sure. Yeah. We begin the conversation and I want to say it went on for 30 seconds before I realized, oh, this is the guy who hired me. <laughs> yeah, that's uncomfortable. And during that time, you can, you can, without knowing it, really snub the other person. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not getting the warmth from you that they expect. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's deeply uncomfortable. Um, I, I'm quite an introverted person. I actually really enjoy being around people, but only people that I can recognize. Mm. Um, but to, to your point, yeah, there are people that are easier for me to recognize than others, but I don't think it has anything to do with their face. I think that their body language or their hair or their smell or their voice is unusual in some way. And it's so easy to pinpoint them every time. I was at a company meeting um, week before last and I remember being in the parking lot and seeing one of my uh, team members who lives in, you know, another state actually. So we don't see each other that often, only at these team meetings. And I saw him and I immediately recognized him. Now, A, I was on high alert for this person. There's only four people on my team, right? Um, and B, I realized as I was looking at him that I almost saw, uh, not, not a, the profile for him, the profile of his face was what did it for me, along with the profile of his neck. And it reminded me a little bit of uh, when people have that, uh, have you seen that drawing of um, John Lennon, where it's just the outline and you see yeah, his, his glasses? You, you can recognize him, yeah. And you can recognize him for that. And what I realized is I actually kind of saw like uh, a little um, brushstroke over the profile of his face with the size of his nose, which is not an unusual nose at all. That combination with the dimensions of his Adam's apple and profile, I immediately knew who he was. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Um, in cartoons as well, you can often pick out who someone is through the way the cartoonist has depicted that person. You know, they've exaggerated certain facial features like a nose or they've exaggerated their ears or something about them, which immediately reminds you of that person. And I think that's what a lot of face-blind people are doing when they're learning a person is they're kind of picking out individual features and then kind of magnifying those in their memory. Agreed. I want to go back to that control shift image you were talking about, and I'm going to include 
those images and the video and the show notes here. Um, actually, the first one you sent me was a static image of four people. Uh, I think they all had black hair, um, middle-aged or a little later. I'm looking at all four of those. If I wasn't on high alert that, hey, I'm being tested here, I would have just said that's the same person four times. Yeah, I would have said it's the same person with different facial expressions. Mm. Well, when you say, you know, when it's obvious that this is for different people using this facial matching technology, um, you know, then I started looking at it like, have you ever been in a, a waiting room where they have the magazine and then the back of the magazine, it's like, you know, find the differences between these two, two, two photos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm good at that. And I can do that with faces in real time. Yes. You- I actually see the face. And so I was looking at things like, ah, okay, I can see here. This eyebrow is a little darker than the rest. And over here, this uh, wrinkle is a little deeper than the rest. Mm-hmm. But again, I wouldn't have uh, picked that out if I hadn't been actively looking for it. But then you sent me uh, the video version, and as I'm looking at the video, it was a lot more obvious to me right away that these were different people because there was motion. And I think there's something to that, and it's uh, eventually I'll have some researchers on here that understand the brain, and uh, you know I intend to ask them about this uh, this idea that you know static images are easy, or static Im- images are harder in a way. Hmm. If you add in this extra element of motion and expression, it, we get more information to draw from. Yeah, that sounds right. Also, you're seeing the angle, the f- face from different angles, which helps. Yes, um, and different different sh- lighting and um, and different facial expressions of the person. Um, but question. So there's there's two. Qu- and the, remember, I said earlier I want to develop a test. Um, mm-hmm. And really, the 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 test. Uh, the, the test should be something like you want to isolate out the features where people are usually relying, face blind people are relying. So you want to, you want to make the hair static. That's why I made the hair static. This is not my image, but this, this is why I chose it. Um, because the hair is the same in all four cases. Um, the first question you want to ask people is, do you see that there's four different people? That's the first question you want to ask. Um, and I think face sighted people will always say yes. Okay. I found that face blind people often say no. They can't see that there's four different people. But then the next question you want to ask is, well, who are those four people? Do you recognize them? And there, um, I found that very interesting because I got them all wrong. I thought I recognized all four, <laughs> but they were not the people that I thought they were. Um, and I gave it to some face-sighted friends and they all very immediately said who they were. Um, so I, found, I find that like magical. I find it magical that people can do this. Um, from this tiny piece of flesh, they can pick out a person that quickly. It's amazing to me. I think the controlled face videos are a fantastic tool that uh, researchers haven't used yet and should do so. It, it is remarkable that our brain can can do that. I mean, how much different is that really than looking at a fingerprint and knowing, oh, that's obviously... Robert Smith, you know? <laughs> yes, you, you can imagine um, someone who looks at fingerprints all day and, and has a fingerprint next to each person's name. Um, a real expert might actually be able to do that. Um, so this is something Oliver Sacks talked about um, in, his, in his discussions. The fusiform face area, the FFA, um, it is often still active and exists in people with face blindness, but it is not picking out faces. 
it's picking out something else. And he he discusses, and a few of your guests on the show have discussed, that they are excellent at recognizing particular dogs, for example. Right. Or particular cats. Um, so, so that area of the brain is not only used for faces, it's used for what's called expert knowledge. So if you are an expert at cats or dogs, or you're an expert at cars or coats or whatever it is, or fingerprints, that area of the brain is going to light up and you're going to have this incredible fine-grained, you'll be able to make fine-grained distinctions between things. And I think that a lot of face-blind people, that area of the brain still works, but it, they, they compensate by using it for, for things other than faces. Hmm. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to do a lot more research now. <laughs> You've given me too much to think about. <laughs> All right, so I'm totally out of order. We jumped into this conversation. I meant to find out more about you personally before we got this deep. But um, So could you tell us a little bit more about uh, a slice of life for for you? You know, you live, where do you live uh, in South Africa? Uh, what do you do for a living? I know you write books and you're a, a philosopher. I'm not sure how philosophers make a living. Neither <laughs> am I. Um, and any hobbies that you're into? Like, what, what does life look like for you? So, um, I guess, I guess the thing that immediately jumps out about my lifestyle is that, um, I'm a night owl. So, um, right now you're talking to me at about 8 PM my time. Um, and I'll be up until about 4 AM every day, four oh. to five. So I, I work through the night and then I sleep in the mornings and then relax in the afternoons and work at night. And I've done this now for about seven years. I've never held a nine to five job. Um, I've only ever consulted. Um, so I ran a sort of private miniature software development business for six years. Um, and then um, I also do digital marketing now. Um, so I make money from that. Um, I, the digital marketing kind of evolved because I advertise my own books to sell them. And I advertise other authors' books now as well. And now I've landed up advertising all sorts of things like political parties. And um, so I run Facebook advertising for these people um, in order for them to make money and I make money from them making money. So I do that. Um, and then I lecture. So that's, that's usually how philosophers make money is they lecture. So I studied philosophy at a university here in Johannesburg. Um, I forgot to mention that. I live in Johannesburg. Um, so I studied at a university here called WITS, um, or the university, university of the Witwatersrand. And I did um, my PhD in philosophy here. And usually PhDs lecture philosophy. So I did lecture part-time for a few years at WITS. Um, but it, I, I didn't enjoy academia that much, partly because it's a nightmare as a face-blind person recognizing all your students. Um, in a big lecture theater, I would usually pick out four or five people whose names I, who I could recognize and whose names I knew and always sat in the same places and call upon them always in a, in a big lecture theater. Um, but, it's, but it's uncomfortable. Um, especially uh, staring at a sea of faces and lecturing to a sea of faces. So I still lecture now, but not philosophy. So I, I lecture logic, um, which is kind of a subsection of philosophy. Um, logic is the, the, the um, field that studies how to argue. And I lecture logic to lawyers. So I lecture logic to advocates and attorneys. I teach them how to argue better. Um, so I do that. And, uh, and yeah, that all keeps me very busy. So that daily lifestyle that you have now, outside of the lecturing, appears fairly solo to me. 
Yes, it is very much so. Um, all of the things that I do, um, all my professional, um, all, all, all the things I do in my profession happen in front of a computer screen with me and the computer. And I talk to people online, all my clients are serviced online. Um, almost nothing happens face-to-face, -face, only the lecturing. And the lecturing, because it's face-to-face, -face, is quite stressful. Do you think that uh, you've naturally done that? All that happened long before you knew you officially had face blindness or maybe had heard of it. Uh, do you think you gravitated to that because of face blindness? I do. Or because of introversion or because of both? I think I'm introverted because I'm face blind. Mm. Um, yeah, because I... You know, when I am presented with people, I'm generally very comfortable with them. Um, and I, I really enjoy being around people, just not too many. As soon as there's too many, I can't recognize them all. I have kind of a limit. And, um, and, and yeah, it's just, you know, the idea of like being part of a corporate where I'd have to w walk in in the morning like you do and have a lot of people around me. That is a terrifying thought to do on a daily basis. That That is a... I don't know how you do it. I mean, I kind of have some idea how you do it because I listened to your episode on this podcast. But I, you know, hats off to you because it's, although you shouldn't take hats off in front of fake <laughs> people. <laughs> but, uh, oh, we're going to have nothing but Oliver, the top 10 Oliver Sacks jokes. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, hats off to you. It's a very tough thing to do. Um, well, to be fair, actually, uh, I'll let the audience know. I, for the last 20 years have worked almost entirely from home. So, uh, oh, interesting. Only for a couple of years was I in a true office environment and I did find that very painful. Um, so I, I have two things going, right? I'm face blind and, uh, naturally introverted as well. Uh, you know, for those of you listening, the classic definition of introversion is uh, if you're around a group of people in a social setting, setting uh, you're losing energy. And when you're done with that, you need to go home, be alone for a little while to recharge the batteries. Hmm. It has nothing to do with your ability to give a, a fantastic, rousing presentation that gathers, you know, that gets people's attention. Uh, it's simply that. Yeah. So there's a, the introversion, extroversion scale is part of the Myers-Briggs scale. Um, right. And um, I come out as like 98% introverted on that. Um, very heavily introverted. But yeah, I, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of types of interactions um, that involve faces, face-to-face -face interactions, which I think um, face-blind people themselves and non-face-blind non people don't realize how much those interactions affect face-blind people. So you know, a lot of people think the problem with being face blind is that you can't recognize someone in a crowd. So uh, you're meeting them, you can't find them. You know, that's that in their mind is the problem. So if you do find them, there's no issue. Uh, that's that's what people assume. And a lot of face blind people assume this too. But over time, what I've realized is it's a lot more extensive. The effect is a lot more extensive than that, at least for me. Um, and, and, you know, one of the effects is that if I'm talking to someone face to face and they turn their head a bit to the left or they take off a, a hat or they take off their glasses, I can't recognize them anymore. I can deduce that they are the person, right? There's no one else that's gotten up from their seat and someone else has sat down. That must be them. But it's a deduction, not a recognition. 
And this is something Oliver, I, I mean, Oliver's a personal hero, as you can hear. So something Oliver Sacks talks about is that the, the area of the brain that is responsible for familiarity is connected to the FFA, the fusiform face area. So if you do not recognize someone, not that you deduce them, but really recognize them, if you can't recognize them, you are not going to feel anything for them. You are not going to feel familiar. All those feelings of warmth, of connectedness, those all come from recognizing someone's face. And so even if you're sitting right in front of someone and you can't recognize who they are, even if you've deduced who they are, I know that this is X, I know that this is John sitting opposite me, but if you can't recognize John, it's going to affect how you feel about him in that moment and how you interact with him. Yeah, that's interesting. I... I can see that as a low level fact that makes you uncomfortable or unhappy over time. That may not be totally conscious. Yeah. I think it's very much unconscious. Yeah. Yeah. The, the bad part of it for me, the thing that I seem to be most tuned into is, um, I strive to be an honest, uh, genuine person. Like that is so important to me. I, I expect that from other people that I interact with. And even though almost nobody has ever caught me talking to them for 30 seconds or 60 seconds before figuring out who they are, like I'm very good at masking that. When I walk away from that, I feel awful because it's like a lie on my part, even though they weren't aware. You know, for the first 30 or 60 seconds, I'm kind of lying mm. in the conversation. Yeah, I mean, that makes me very uncomfortable to do as well. Um, I think what's been very interesting for me is now to start talking to... I've now come out as face blind amongst my friends. And um, I've started asking them about how I am with them when I can't recognize them. And I've been quite shocked to get feedback on that um, because they see me as very aloof, as very much not present or not really listening, or those are during the times when I can't recognize them. And when I can recognize them, they don't see me that way at all. And so they see a big change in me and that can make them quite uncomfortable. Let's turn a little bit to uh, your podcast. So the most recent one uh, that you sent over is called Let's Start an Argument. And I've listened to three episodes. I think there are five total. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Five episodes. And that's it. It's five and done on that one. Yes. It's not an ongoing it's series. Complete. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So you argue strongly in favor of identity politics, that ethnicity is the only important attribute. Oh, I, I actually argue exactly the opposite. So I, I argue very I, much. I, I got that. Yeah. I'm joking with you. I, I picked that up, right? You, you. Gosh, I, I must have done a really bad job delivering this message. Yeah. Uh, no, what, what I meant to say is uh, you believe that racism does not exist and the Holocaust never happened. No. <laughs> so I definitely believe racism exists and that the Holocaust happened. <laughs> Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just think that, that, okay, so basically what I argued in that podcast is that there are no groups. So there's just individuals. Um, people don't belong to races. They're not black or white. They're just individuals. But other people do typecast them as white or black. Um, they might typecast themselves as white or black, um, as belonging to a race. Um, 
uh, gosh, I mean, you inserted the most inflammatory possible, uh, <laughs> the most inflammatory possible interpretation of of what I was saying. Um, so, so yeah, I, I grew up Jewish uh, in a Jewish family, um, but I don't believe that Jews exist. I believe there's people who believe they're Jewish, but they don't believe so truly. And it's not specific to Jews. It's the case with all religions and all ethnicities and all groups. I just think there's individuals, and the the. The, the, that series of podcasts is really about, um, you know, all the all the ways that identity politics has been built up around this idea that there's a group. And um, if we take that away, what happens? So I bring this up for two reasons. Uh, this is not a political podcast, but uh, one, uh, if listeners are interested in these topics, I mean, it's certainly a point of view, and I would recommend you go listen to the podcast but two, you live in South Africa. Clearly, there has been uh, a lot of racial racial turmoil there. I'm probably probably putting that lightly uh, over the last ever. Um, so I'm curious. So, so you're um, you know paying close attention to race and ethnicity, and I'm curious from your experience. Do you find that face blindness? is a bigger deal with people outside of your race, assuming you believe race exists? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I recently dated a black man and black men are very difficult for me to identify because they don't have hair. And hair is a very big identifier for me. So it's, it's a whole lot of men without hair. That's very, that's very hard. Um, you know, thinking back to everyone else I've dated before that, they've had big hair. They've been of various ethnicities, but they've all had big hair. Um, I'm drawn to people with big glasses and big hair, or at least one <laughs> of the two, um, because they're just so identifiable. Um, but yeah, black men are very hard for me to identify. If you think about other races like uh, Chinese or Asian, I should say, um, you know, do you find similar issues um, or is it really just about the lack of hair and you, you, you're you missing a key marker? Yeah, I think my biggest marker is hair. Um, I've had two Chinese boyfriends, long-term Chinese boyfriends. So over time, altogether, I was with them for five year, five and a half years, the two of them. Um, I had no problem identifying them more than anyone else. Um, for some reason, their faces were quite easy. Something I found interesting about Chinese people is that their facial expressions, and I could be completely wrong about this and anyone is welcome to correct me, but it was, it was a personal experience is their facial expressions are more muted than Caucasian people. They still experience all facial expressions, but they're not as elastic on their faces. And so their faces were more um, kind of, not stagnant, but more kind of still. And it was easier to, to kind of pick them out. And so I found it, are paradoxically quite easy to recognize them, even though they were of a different race from me. Um, and I found it very comforting to to have Chinese partners. You threw me there. I did not understand what you just said. You, they have uh, less facial expression, but that but they were easier for you to read? Well, their, their facial expressions weren't as um, stretchy. Does that make sense? Uh, their facial expressions didn't transform their face as much as Caucasian people that I know. Oh, I see. So they are uh, more likely to have a consistent expression and face. Yeah, exactly. That makes it easier later. Oh, interesting. 
Well, I did enjoy listening uh, to the podcast. It's um, it's a rough topic. I I think you're walking a very tight uh, rope there. You know where you know I was trying to be inflammatory with my description because <laughs> I read you as uh, you know o- open and progressive, but you could easily be pulled into uh, a far right camp. And I don't think that's you. No, it's, I mean, I'm a gay man. Uh, I live a polyamorous lifestyle. It's a very liberal lifestyle. Um, and, you know, I, I associate with people of all races, um, all, all religions and ethnicities. Um, but I don't see them as belonging to those races. I see them as individuals. And um, any idea these days that doesn't rely on identity politics, and just to define for listeners, identity politics is basically the view that who you are fundamentally is at least determined in part by the groups that you belong to. Um, and I think that's incorrect. Firstly, I don't think there are any groups and I don't think you belong to them. And secondly, I think you are much more than the groups that you belong to. Um, and so when I relate to individuals, I relate to them as individuals rather than as belonging to a certain group. And um, I can see why some people would see that as right wing, because um, they think that anything that's not identity politics based must be right wing. Um, but, you know, right wingers have a very strong identity politics. It's just very different. So um, right wingers believe very firmly in, in nationality. Um, being proudly American, for example. And, um, you know, I wouldn't believe that because I don't think America exists because it's a group. Um, so, yeah, there's, I, I understand that these ideas are a bit weird. Um, but so this, it comes from my PhD. So my PhD was on why social groups don't exist, why there's only individuals. And um, people find that quite bizarre. But looking back now, knowing that I'm face blind, it makes complete sense. Um, because a lot of face-blind people perceive the world in terms of individual items, not in terms of collections. Because, you know, the face is just a collection of features. And I cannot see whole faces. I can only see individual features on a face. I can only see an individual eye, another individual eye, a nose, a mouth. But I can't zoom out and look at it as a group, as a face. And I do the same thing with people. I see an individual, an individual, an individual. I don't see... A family or a political party or a country or a, a race. I see a, a whole lot of individuals with lots of differences between them. You know, I'm glad I'm glad that you recognize this because that that was where I was kind of leading you with the question is I wondered if uh, that choice of your PhD study was uh, somewhat influenced by face blindness in just the way you described. I think it was totally unconsciously so. Um, you know, looking back, I think so many of my life choices from my career choices, as you said, they career choices that don't involve being face to face with another person, um, to my PhD topic, to, um, my beliefs, um, to the people I choose as friends and partners. So many of those choices are made because, you know, they, they issue from this thing about me, this face blindness. And Oliver Sacks said the same about himself and about his patients that were face blind, that their whole lives were determined by this. And that is, that is quite a scary thing when you're not aware of it, because suddenly the veil is pulled off and you realize how much of your life has been shaped by this. Mm. A moment ago, you said 
you cannot see the face in its entirety. You can pick out an eyeball or a nose and focus on that. As with another guest, I want to dive into that and make sure I fully understand what you're saying. You don't, you can't actually see in real time the entirety of the face or are you talking about your memory and visualization, like with your eyes closed or at another time trying to remember the face? I think that in real time, I can't see a whole face, but I can in real time see any given feature. Hmm. So, you know, I was trying to think of a good analogy for this. Um, and, and a good one that pops to mind is it is impossible for me to see constellations. Um, you know, constellations of stars. Right. Be- because you, you lack the line yeah. between them? Yeah. So if you draw the line, then sure, I can see the constellation. But if you take that line away, I can't, my mind cannot fill in those lines. I can just see the individual dots, the individual stars. Um, and my, when the, the more I look, the more my brain zooms in on one of those stars, it doesn't see the constellation. And it was always a total mystery to me how people saw constellations. And I actually thought they were lying that no one, no one sees constellations. And I think the same thing is true of faces. I'm seeing the individual dots, the individual features, but I cannot see the whole face. Hmm. See, I believe I can see faces fully in real time when I'm looking at someone. Uh, I mean, I'm capturing everything in real time. Well, there's some debate about whether you're seeing anything in real time. <laughs> sure. Millisecond delay of, you know, light reaching your eyes. You're always uh, simulating the past with the brain. Yeah. But that's, that's a very important distinction that you make, um, not in terms of time, but in terms of the fact that there's processing happening. And I'm saying that at least for my type of face blindness, um, during that processing, I'm not processing whole faces as a category, the gestalt. I'm processing individual features. Got it. Before we wrap up today, uh, the last topic I wanted to get your take on is now you very recently, within the last year or the last number of months, discovered that you have face blindness or realized it was about seven months ago okay so within the last year um where are you in terms of telling people about this and how do you go about it in a way that would make it stick i was thinking about um this today in popular culture uh there are some things that rarely ever happen to people that everyone is well aware of. So when I was a kid, for example, uh, I'm probably the same in South Africa, I would assume a lot, a lot of TV shows where people were stepping into quicksand. Yes. Tons. Yeah. And that became part of just, na- you know, native, uh, knowledge for everyone who had never actually seen or been anywhere near quicksand. Quicksand right? very rare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and there was another one that I thought of too. Um, oh, yeah. And the other obvious one is you get head on the head and you have amnesia. Right. Again, I've never met anyone that had amnesia, much less had it myself. But if you describe quicksand or amnesia to anyone, they will immediately <laughs> violently understand what you're talking about. Not the case with face blindness from my experience. Which is so strange because face blindness is not that rare. Um <laughs> 
so so to give you to give you an idea of the frequency it's roughly two percent of people they believe are face blind and two percent of people is the same number of people as are gay think about how much awareness there is around gayness or homosexuality i thought it was 10 percent. is that bad data no that's it's a common misconception yeah it's about two yeah okay um but that's that. That's a lot of people. You know. Th- you know how many gay people do you know? Lots. You know, like, and you've heard of homosexuality. You know about same-sex couples. There's laws about it. There've been discussions about it endlessly. If you were to search for homosexuality on Google, you will find millions and millions, <laughs> hundreds of millions of hits. Right? If you were to search for face blindness, you won't. So there is just a massive uh, misunderstanding of it and, and lack of understanding and lack of awareness. And I think the reason is because people themselves don't know they're face blind. Hmm. You know, someone who is face blind, nine times out of 10, they're not going to know they are. There was, uh, I have seen, uh, I know I've seen at least one movie in probably an episode of a TV show where the person was face blind this is before I knew I was face blind. So, you know, I can't remember the titles, but, uh, people have used it as an element in fiction, but it hasn't taken off or grabbed the attention like amnesia. That's interesting. I haven't found it in fiction at all. I found two novels with it. I can't remember the names offhand, but I found two novels. Someone in a, in a face blind Facebook group posted that it's very common in Korean dramas um, it's, it's like a trope that appears regularly, which is quite amazing to me. Um, but no, I, I, I'm not aware of any movies. I'd be very curious to know the name if you could post it. So I'd love to watch it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll dig those up. I'm sure I can find them. Maybe I'll have a section of the website, you know, movies featuring face blindness. Um, but back to the question, um, at at your stage now uh in coming out with face blindness uh are you just telling everyone um have you found that it's worth the effort i find that i'm reverting back after my initial excitement to just going back to what i used to do which is just not mentioning it because it takes too long to explain what where are you yeah i get tired of the explanation um also people are generally they fall into different camps i'd say at least half are incredulous um, what do you mean you can't recognize faces? Mm-hmm. What, 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 what do you, what do you, well, you can't see faces. What do you mean you're face blind? What is that? Are you, do you see like a blur when you look at me? They ask, you know, uh, um, so, and that, that's a lot of that. That's quite time consuming. Um, so I, 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 I wrote a Facebook status update about a few months ago, uh, where I posted a link to a 60 minutes episode, an episode of 60 minutes, which I thought was excellent and really kind of showed what face blindness is like for people. It's a 15 minute clip on YouTube. And I posted that on my Facebook feed and I said, well, um, I gave one of Oliver Sacks' stories where he didn't recognize himself in a mirror. And I posted the link to the YouTube video and I said, if you ever see me in public, I'd be so grateful if you would just tell me who you are. Um, I think very few people actually read that far (laughs) down the clip, Mm. down the Facebook post. And most people don't know that I'm face blind. My close friends all know, um, but I can generally recognize my close friends. So it's not really them who I need to tell. Um, When I don't recognize someone who I should in public, there's always this moment of, do I continue the, as you said, inauthentic conversation to try and work out who they are? 
or do I come clean that I don't know who they are? And the problem is the longer you continue the inauthentic conversation, the worse it is when you then say, yeah, we've been talking for the last 10 minutes, but I have no idea who you were this whole time. I'm so sorry. I think there's a legitimate feeling of betrayal there that they could feel. Um, Even, you know, regardless, it's not then about you being face blind that they feel betrayed about, but the fact that you've kind of lied to them for 10 minutes. Um, So I try not to do that anymore. When I genuinely don't know who they are, I say, I'm really sorry, I have this thing, I'm face blind. Um, I can tell you about it if you like, but basically what it means is that I can't recognize people's faces. Um, Can you please tell me who you are? And I must say that has not become easier to say each time. Hmm. It is very hard to say. I'm saying it quite smoothly right now, but it doesn't come out that way when I talk to people face to face. Um, It's very hard to, in that moment, say it. And some people get quite flustered and upset, maybe because I'm flustered at that moment. Um, You know, I don't think there's an easy solution to this. I don't think there is. In that situation, it's very uncomfortable and there's no easy There's no easy way to talk about it. But having said that, some of the people that I have had these interactions with and explained this to have been incredibly empathetic, Um, surprisingly empathetic, where they they don't see it as funny or they're not incredulous. They say, oh, I had no idea. That's fascinating. I would love to hear more about that. And I imagine that's very hard for you. And those people now I'm finding that I feel very close to. Hmm. Well, let's circle back uh, to a question I forgot to ask uh, related to your writing. Do you have any face blind characters in any of your books? I don't, but I absolutely have to write one, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I've been trying to think of some, because I'm a science fiction writer, I've been trying to think of some really cool sci-fi plots that involve face blindness as a key feature. And I think I have one and I'm not going to give it away now because I never talk about my plots until I've written them, but I want to make it a key feature of the story um, where it's very important for the technology of the world that this person is face blind and it alters the world in some enormous way. Uh, I think you have an advertising audience here. Uh, So as soon as that's released, please let me know and I'll, uh, I'll post it as well. Thank you, Jeff. Um, to end the interview, then I uh, again I will I I wouldn't say the writing is good if it was bad. I am enjoying your writing so far. So, um, where can people find? Where should they go to find your books? Do you have a website? I actually couldn't find a website for you. I do. I have a website, but the best place to go is onto Amazon. Okay. So if if they go onto Amazon and they search for my name, which is impossible to spell, but it's Jason Werbeloff, W E R B E L O F for Freddie. Jason Werbeloff, they will find it on Amazon and all my books are there. Great. And would you, uh, do you have other social media outlets where you like to interact with people? I have other social media inter- uh, outlets, but I don't like to interact with people. So. <laughs> so, so I try not to. This is coming from a digital marketer who's all about interacting with people. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, I often get um, emails from, from readers, uh, and that's very, very um, comforting, and it's wonderful hearing people's thoughts about my books. Um, if they ever want to email me, they can email me at author at jasonwerbeloff.com. 
Perfect. Jason, thank you for the time today. This was fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And thanks very much again for being on the podcast. It's fantastic. For more info on this episode or prosopagnosia in general, visit faceblindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.